Welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, your source for helping you dominate and insulate your growing practice through two pillars of success, systems and marketing. And now here's your host, Dr. Peter Bolden. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight on the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast, I'm super excited to have Dr. Brady Frank. Dr. Frank is a good friend of mine and a practicing dentist who graduated in 2001. He lives in Oregon and is, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating dental colleagues there is. He's got about five practices. He's bought and sold over about 20 practices in his life. He's the owner and founder of an, an implant company called OsteoReady, the owner and founder of Transition Time, a transition company. And basically, Brady's got a book coming out, and and you're starting your own podcast, which I know we've, I'm, I'm laughing because we just we talked about it, and I know you uh, are about to get on your own after immediately after talking to me. So, Brady, thanks for coming on, buddy. And um and as a side note, we have tried to do this this interview and discussion and talk three times now, and we've had technical difficulties. So, this is going to be awesome because third time is always the charm. So it shows how committed we are to this. Totally. You know, you're, that's what I tell people. You're all in or you're all out. You got to pick one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, this is great. Well, I've had, I've had a blast talking to you each time. So unfortunately, your, your fans don't get to hear those dry runs, but we, we had a blast. So I mean, hey, this is, this is good. It was good. The second one was almost good, except my ego, the fact that I sounded like a chipmunk, the, my ego in me would not let me not let me publish that. So although the content was awesome, I just can't get my head wrapped around the fact that I sounded like literally the chipmunk. But yeah, you sounded awesome there, pal. Well, hey, this is good. We get to do it uh, another time. And I think we'll probably even go deeper into the, these subjects, which will be good. So I, I, I think this may have worked out for the best. No, Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, it's just like practicing, practicing a little bit more. So Brady, I have to, um, I'm to say, like when I was talking to you, we were just recently in the, in Nashville together at the the Voices of Dentistry, and you and I were kind of sharing a beer and and just chatting, and you were telling me about all the stuff that you either got going on or you're doing, and literally, you're one of those people that makes me like question like what the hell I'm doing with my life because you're getting so much done, and we're like the same age, so I mean, you know, just you, really, you're doing a lot of things, and it seems like you've done. You've done a lot in dentistry, meaning you, you, you know, I think you started out doing lectures on transition, right? Or, uh, what was it? Phasing out kind of transitions? Yeah. Well, see, here's the deal. I guess this is one of the big topics of our podcast today. It may seem like I've done a lot, but due to the scalability of some of the businesses I've put together, it may seem like I'm doing a lot, but the reality is with a lot of other people doing stuff on your behalf, you may look better than you are. So let's let's jump right into it and talk about scalability as it relates to dentistry and then how it relates to corporate groups and how everybody, I think, coping, hoping that's listening, kind of grasp how can they scale their lives, meaning how can they do more with what, the time they have here? How can they have more income, not just kind of receiving the income that they make from their own two hands doing dentistry? And I think it's a, a timely moment to have this conversation because everybody sees these corporate group practices scaling around us. So anyway, let's talk about that. So Peter, on our previous podcast, we talked about how obviously corporate dentistry is making a huge impact, yet at the same time, solo dentists are, are actually doing quite well if we look historically. And so it just happens to be that dentistry is one of the top three most profitable businesses in America right now. 
And I'd love to talk about how dentists can scale what they're doing and scale what they enjoy as well at the same time. So where do you think we should pick up, Peter? There's so many topics that relate to dentists expanding. Where should we pick up? I would say let's give a little backstory. Um, not backstory on it, but let's go back up and say, you know, because I know you're going to talk about kind of a DSO. So let's get into kind of some definitions and lay some groundwork because we're going to get into the, the granular aspects of some of these. But let's lay some kind of – because I don't want to jump in because some of these people might might not have heard some of these terms. It might be the first time. So let's, I want to kind of just lay some groundwork and then we can kind of talk about, like I said, the minutia of, of these and then the execution of said topics. Okay. I think that sounds great. And I know you know all these definitions, Peter. Some of them have multiple definitions. So I'll give the definitions based on how I believe them to be and we'll go from there. So number one, dentists started selling their practices as an asset in the early 1970s. One of the first groups to ever do that was the guy who started AFCO. I think I believe his name was Alan Thornburg. Yeah, yeah, Alan Thornburg. And he was from around your area. Yep. So he, he started saying, hey, Dennis, you don't have to just give away your patients. You can actually sell that business as a going concern. Because in the past, they'd, they'd write a nice letter to their patients, and they say, they'd say, Ed, my best friend who I graduated from dental school with, will be seeing you now. And Ed would get really busy because there, there your patients went. And then you'd scrap your equipment. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it start, believe it or not, it started with them. And I know some people may have uh, differing opinions on AFCO now. You know, AFCO has changed a lot. It's gone from that one guy to, you know, a, a franchise chain of brokers. But whatever you feel about them, they were the ones that started to tell dentists, hey, your business is worth something. From that, we saw dentists starting to sell their practice and actually receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars for their practice as an asset. And then dentistry sort of evolved where we found that the business of dentistry was a separate entity in and of itself within the practice. There was the clinical side and then the business side. And then people started to break up that chunk or of the practice into business or non-clinical and then the clinical aspects. And so that's where these corporate groups started coming in. They uh, started hiring dentists, owning the asset of the dental practice, and employing the dentist. And then we ended up getting into some trouble with corporate practice law because a lot of the states did not like non-dentists owning a practice. They made arguments like only a dentist knows how a dental practice should be run. Only a dentist can properly higher staffing because there's hygienists that have clinical knowledge. Therefore, we're putting in our board rulings that only a dentist can own a dental practice. So then, knowing that there was profit in dentistry, folks started to work their way around the system, so to speak, by creating a separate entity, if you will, that basically received money for certain services. And that's where the dental services organization came about, a DSO, which is basically creating a clean, definitive line or division between the clinical practice of dentistry and the business part of dentistry. And that's why a lot of corporate groups have expanded and are able to expand without being dentists, even in states, which is the majority of them, where you have to be a dentist to own a practice. So what what the cool thing is today, Peter, is we could talk about all the 
good things or profitable things that the corporate groups have done with their multi-million dollar budgets and reverse engineer those to create profit for dentists. And so we got the definition of a DSO. And so how does a dentist start to do well using some of the techniques that DSOs use? So first of all, like we talked about last podcast, Peter, we kind of talked about the advantages that the DSO touts to a dentist who would be onboarded as an associate. And we talked about vendor discounts. And we both agreed that, hey, when your practice gets big enough, you can get a vendor discount as a regular dentist or a dentist with two or three, right? Yeah, we were talking literally about like how people think that there it's this 800-pound gorilla that you that you know they get all these advantages, but you're right. Like you know, you you scale big enough, and that competing entity isn't that isn't that they don't have that big of a competitive advantage, you know? Like, but everyone everyone thinks there is this massive like, oh well, I can't compete on supplies, and oh, I can't compete on labs, and oh, I can't compete. Yes, you can, and you can do it better. I think so. Sorry, sorry to jump in there, Brady. I just wanted to give some context. No, that, that that's great. And I would venture to say that your personal group in Atlanta probably has about ninety plus percent of the advantages that a group that has 100 locations could get, meaning guys can do this. Guys can put this together and give dentists you know, who join the group an even bigger advantage, and that would be in the form of perhaps even being part of the DSO. And so I think a good way to call, separate these or to move forward would be to just call the DSO the non-clinical entity and then the PC the clinical entity. And so for folks that are listening that already have a practice or a couple practices or maybe don't own a practice, here's how that income is usually broken up and here's, here's how one can scale themselves. And so if you create a business, a dental practice that does well and is providing you income and you want to grow that practice, most folks just hire some associates and find themselves in what I call the associate mill, windmill. And oftentimes what that is, is an associate coming in, you build kind of part of your practice around them. And then in 18 months or so, oftentimes they leave. And that can be fine. But at the end of the day, it really didn't satisfy the goals of that dentist or the practice owner oftentimes. And so with a growing practice, usually those that do really well end up offering ownership shares in the clinical aspect of the practice at a certain stage in their growth, maybe once they're to five practices, let's say. And beyond that, one can also, for those dentists that want to grow and scale and manage, you can also start breaking up that DSO part. So instead of having the DSO owned by you know, various teachers unions or private equity, the dentists that are actually owning part of the clinical side actually partake in the DSO. And so the DSO side is the part that can be scaled. It's the income that's truly more passive, although it does involve all the strategic work of acquiring practices and adding partners and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, I've seen so many groups around the U.S. that have built their whole retirement on the cash flow from both the non-clinical business side or the DSO side and uh, real estate as well. So I know we'll dovetail into that, Peter, a little later, but I think those are some of the basic definitions. 
And I know that a couple people had requested just this week to give the definition of a trial partner as well, which we could go into. But Well, I think it's cool, too, is what we talk about, Brady, is, is the traditional model of the transition. So if we're talking about transitions and, and things like that and bringing on associates. But the traditional model and the valuation, you kind of alluded to it with the AFCO thing. And there's been this, quote, unquote, 70 to 90 percent valuation of a practice for top line revenue, and then you sell it, and then you walk away, which is typically how most dentists have been, which is how you understand it, right? You hope that that's enough for retirement, and then you walk away. So I like this model that you're kind of teaching with a DSO and that you've broken up the entities, and it gives the dentist, the owner dentist, a little bit more power in perpetuity to really stay in the game, right? Not do all the heavy lifting of clinical, bring on an associate trial partner and really build their wealth through the duration and not get out of the game. Because like, honestly, you know, what does study, what do studies show five years after retirement people die or six years after they, they stop working, they just die. I mean, that's literally the, like the statistics. Yep. You're absolutely right. And you hit on a great point, which is how do we, plan our exit strategy, so to speak. And and most exit strategies of, of a lot of businesses are, hey, build it up, build it up, build it up, sell it, and then take that money, invest it, and then live off the interest. And so in this model, I'd like to talk about another definition, as long as we're talking about definitions, is called the continuous exit strategy. And so for the dentist who does like dentistry and continues to want to do something useful for, with their time, what they do is they acquire practices, whether it's two, whether it's three, whether it's 40 practices, whatever it may be, they acquire practices. And here's another definition, which we'll talk about in more detail, the value added practice. So those two work in concert, which is the continuous exit strategy or equity harvesting and the uh, what did I say the first one? I'm, I'm mixing up my definition. Continuous exit strategy and then value-added practice. Yes. So the, the goal of many of these small dentist-owned groups is to find, A, first, a value-added practice. Whether you currently own one practice or two or three or ten, you find a practice that somebody has not done the best that they could with. It could be six ops. It could be ten ops. <laughs> I just got done meeting today with a gentleman who literally two hours ago just got out of the meeting with him and his staff. And it's a nine operatory facility, room for four more operatories. There used to be four dentists there. Two of the dentists left. Another guy moved to Florida. And now it's just this guy practicing out of the three of the nine operatories with a big patient base. He's, uh, like I said, close to 70 years old. And that practice used to do $3.5 million. And it does around 600000 right now. And so that is not too, too far for most of us to see that practice getting up to $2 million and beyond. And so that practice would be considered a value-added practice. And what this gentleman told me was, I don't want to be cashed out. I want long-term cash flow, which means he wants a seller finance note, which means no banks involved, just payments. So in those situations, to scale yourself becomes relatively easy if you understand the definition of a continuous exit strategy and a value-added practice with the concept of equity harvesting. So it's real easy. Find a value-added practice, acquire it creatively, ideally without your own cash or the bank, grow the practice. Once you've grown the practice, you have positive equity. Now we've got to convert that equity to cash, and that's called equity harvesting. 
the best way to convert equity to cash is to sell interest in the clinical part of the business, assuming you have a management agreement in place ahead of time with your own personal DSO. So like I had mentioned before, you sell interest in the clinical side, keep your DSO, so you're kind of getting your cake and eating it too, and not just the owner dentist, but all dentists involved, you're selling, receiving cash, would be, which would be a form of exit strategy, so you're receiving cash, but you're not letting the business go, you keep the DSO side for cash flow. So you get cash and cash flow in deals like that. And the cool thing is, when the stock market fell, a bunch, you know, in the, uh, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, it postponed the retirement of literally hundreds and several, probably several thousand dentists. And so right now, this last year, it has hit. These guys, just like I met with today, 68-year-old guys are saying, ah, the stock market's over 20,000. Man, I can finally retire. So right now, we have about... 45 to 50% more dentists retiring than we had thought before because they delayed retirement. And of course, these are practices where they're kind of fee for service. You know, they're only using a portion of their space. They're in good locations, some of them, bad locations, other. You got to figure that part out, of course. But these are all have the potential to be value added practices where we can quickly convert that asset from a decent value to an exceedingly good value. And so we've all seen these shows, the, the flipper flipper shows, right, on, on TV, Peter, where they take it and, and they read. Flip houses and yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're buying it for 200, putting 50 grand into it and selling it for 300 and making 50,000, right? We are so blessed in dentistry that I found the average value-added practice today, you should be able to make 300 to $500,000 a year in equity from buying a value-added practice. At, at what level, though? At what level? So you say value-added. I mean, obviously, that some of that depends on the purchase price, the entry level, what you're getting in at. That's right. So I have a form. It's actually a little spreadsheet. You plug in the number of dentists at the practice, the gross revenue, the number of hygiene days, and the overhead percentage. And then using... So I'm able to do it just quickly and more intuitively now. But if you think about it a while, you can figure it out too. So let's give an example of a two-year cash-on-cash return of the value-added practice that I was just looking at today that I'll will probably end up acquiring, one of, one of the groups that I'm involved with. So nine-op practice, used to be four docs, two docs moved away and partnered together, another doc moved to Florida, and instead of adding more docs, the docs that's there – he was doing well financially, so he didn't add more dentists. He enjoyed his practice life, yet he's practicing out of three of the nine operatories doing 700000 a year. Business value, I think we'd all agree, is about 500000 So let's say that business is acquired for 500000 on a 10-year note at 6% interest with payments per month of $3,800. Let's say that the group already owns three practices. You may on the phone, be a solo doc. So let's also say you own one practice. So the doc looking at this value-added opportunity owns one. Either way, you go in, acquire the practice, and start working it maybe even yourself one day a week and having key staff members from your current practice start putting in place all the systems in your practice that have made you successful. And you start rehabbing that office. You 
start increasing the revenue. This particular group that this value-added practice could be added to has a number of dentist partners at the clinical level and a number of dentist partners at the DSO level. And so let's just say you added one trial partner when you acquired the practice and you had yourself working one day a week and another partner coming in to do, let's say, implants, because right now this value-added practice refers out all endo and refers out all implants to a periodontist and an oral surgeon. So I think that practice would end up doing about 150000 a month by the end of four months. I think that would be a reasonable goal, which would put an annualized revenue on that practice at $1.8 million. At $1.8 million, that practice is worth roughly $1.5 million. And so whenever you get that practice to $1.8, it's worth $1.5, and it was doing $700, and you paid $500. So your increase in equity was a million dollars, an increase in equity. So we all know that equity is different than cash, meaning if your business is worth $1.5 million, that doesn't mean much of anything. Yeah, it might mean you have good cash flow, but it didn't do anything to your retirement account. And everybody who's listening today who has a solo practice understands that, yeah, we could make $400,000 a year as a dentist, but we somehow find a way to spend a lot of it. So we're not really putting this huge cash nest egg away. And so let me show you how, to, how you can have the cash flow from an investment, but also put that cash to the side or pay off debt. So. First phase, find the value-added practice. Second phase, grow the value-added practice. Now you have a positive equity situation. Now you've got to find a way to receive cash from the investment. And what I believe is one of the finest ways and best ways for all dentists involved to do that is to add partners to the clinical side and to start them as a trial partner Because if you start them as a trial partner, they get to see exactly what income they would make both on the clinical and the non-clinical side before they pull the trigger and get bank financing. And so the continuous exit strategy relies on the concept of equity harvesting. So we've just talked about how we could increase that business from doing 700 to 1.8, and now we have a million of positive equity. So to start pulling that equity out, we now allow other dentists to partake in the ownership of what many would consider a real great asset now. Most dentists don't think a $700,000 practice is a great asset. Most dentists do believe that a practice doing $1.8 million in nine ops is a great asset. And so we sell partnerships into the clinical level, and that cashes out some of the positive growth or equity. So maybe you didn't cash out that full million, but maybe you cashed out six or 700,000 of it, and that was part of a, a, the whole small group. So there may be multiple dentists that partake in that, in that six or 700,000. So everybody makes two or three or 400,000, depending on how many partners are there. If it's just yourself, you've just made six or $700,000 on that investment. But either way... How are you determining, are you determining the buy-in valuation since you're breaking it up into a DSO, which is taking a X percent 
of gross revenue, right? And then you have the clinical side, which has all the remaining profits of the kind of clinical after the DSO is paid. So then how are you defining, let's say, let's say you, the practice that you're talking about, how are you then you defining the purchase buy-in equity conversion price point? Yes. So is highly dependent on whether this practice is part of a pre-existing group or if this is a standalone deal. Let's call it a standalone deal. Let's just just add it, just the solo, the silo of uh, you know this one practice, just so we can kind of put it in in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. So let's say you're a solo guy and you're adding this practice, which would be practice number two. So I generally recommend that you would not operate the two practices as separate businesses. I would recommend that you'd have them both under one PLLC. And I'll give the three reasons why I'd recommend that you do that and how it fits in. So your your practice number one acquires practice number two. Let's say your practice number one is already doing 1.8. So many listening today might be saying, well, mine does a lot more than that. Some of you are saying, well, I only do 1.2. Not a big deal. Doesn't really matter. Nevertheless, let's just say the next one does about 1.8. So now you've got two practices together doing about $3 million, maybe a little more. So the value of a $3 million practice is about 2.5-ish. And if you're going to sell half of your enterprise, that would be a debt a loan of about $1.25 million. Most banks aren't going to lend that much to a solo dentist, an incoming new dentist, and most dentists don't want to sign a loan that big. So what I generally recommend that one does is begin with the end in mind and say, huh, well, for the first phase of my growth, my goal is to add five partners. And so I will pre-break up the clinical side into chunks, bite-sized chunks. Let's say it's five 20% partners, one for you, the founder. And generally, the founder maintains the managing member piece because he's the one that, that grew it to this point. And perhaps he would be most trusted to continue growing on that same path. But then you've got four 20% chunks beyond that. So you would ask dentists or when you propose the buy-in to them, you'd say, hey, I've broken up into five equal partnerships. I've got one guy that's in here already. He's working toward buying that, and he's going to be an equal partner, equal 20% partner. I got another guy who we're going to add once we close on this practice that's ready to go right when we close on this practice. He'd be buying 20%. And then there's two more partnerships that as we grow these practices and we start filling up the nine operatories, we add those guys, and of course, they'll be trial partners, so we'll get to get to see how they are first, but then they buy those other two chunks. So those two practices would then grow in that fashion, and you might need a, three, a third practice before you add partner number five, perhaps. But nevertheless, what's happened is you've created five equal partners, including yourself on the clinical side, and then on the DSO side, I just put together a transaction in the southeast $7 million practice, added two 20% partners, $997,000 each, and that founder of the practice is going to now add two more partners at nine, roughly 997 each. And then, because he has a bigger vision, he will have effectively, quote-unquote, exhibited some form of an exit strategy 
So we, he will have received four partner buy-ins. He has some cash. Now he ends up being the financial instrument that goes and buys these value-added practices. Now the cool part is this guy is providing the funding, but the guys that, that bought in, as long as they own a part of the DSO, 5%, 10%, or just part of the clinical, whatever it may be, as long as they have some vested interest. They're going to benefit too. Exactly. So now you've got your, your clinical guys to come in and say, okay, guys, what can we do with this practice? I'll donate two Fridays a month to this practice and I'll do implants. And then, you know, you have your full-time trial partners. So it's awesome. What I'm seeing, Brady, is, is, is that's awesome is that they're using a, a tax advantage dollar to then take the equity conversion, roll that into buying another practice, which then which then helps them not dilute themselves as the founding partner. Absolutely. And they've created for the, themselves a momentum stream. And all reality is, let's do another definition. And and I know we had talked about doing a separate co- podcast for real estate, which probably will need to be severed. But, but watch this. The, the founding dentist has thusly become a private equity company. Yes, a small phase private equity. But what does private equity do? They bring in capital. They often bring in debt financing, so they get actually an interest rate on the capital they bring in, but then they get equity in the business that they're funding. So they're making money two ways. They're making money as a lending institution, and they're also making money on this business if it grows, and they don't invest in a business unless they have high returns. So what that founding dentist has become is he's exhibited a continuous exit strategy, but the strange irony is it's not really an exit strategy. It's an expansion and growth strategy where he adds another bucket of income into his life in the form of private equity investment. So he's receiving an interest rate on his money, a rate of return on his money, I should say, and a chunk of the equity in the next business. And every private equity company would always love to own the majority of the business that they're buying into, but most of them don't get to do that. They get to own 20%. 40%. Everybody's watched Shark Tank, right? I mean, most of those deals, 8%, 20%, 30%. The big ones are, let's go 50-50, right? So that's what we're able to do. The founding dentist is able to do. He's able to open new sub-DSO regions and be the funder of those regions and not give up the ship. He can still maintain control. And frankly speaking, the young dentists who are going to partner with him on this journey they really are not going to want to own the majority or have the control because they have no really safety net of finances. And that's where this founder comes in. He's, he's got enough safety net to say, guys, guys, I think this is, is going to work. I'm going to kick in another $20,000 to help market this value-added practice so we can get it up to where we want it. So anyway, it's a unique time in dentistry. And by understanding kind of some of these things that the big DSOs have used, We can start to recreate the model, but on a smaller dentist-only scale. And the cool thing is everybody wins. Every dentist that buys in gets to take part in these equity growth expansion pieces. So you just described a very entrepreneurial model. And, you know, let's be honest, like some... Some dentists obviously just want to do dentistry and they're not looking to scale and grow and acquire and separate DSOs. Can you talk about how this model, though, like we were talking about earlier, would be a good 
model, even if you didn't want to grow out of one practice, would be a good model versus the traditional, I'm going to sell my practice for 70% through a broker who's going to take 10% and then, and then I'm going to walk away. Like, can you talk about how this would be even a better model for the associate coming in, the practicing own, owning dentists, and for the non, I'm going to say, quote unquote, non-entrepreneurial ones, ones who aren't looking to acquire any more practice. They like their practice. They're going to stay with that for their career. But how can this model behoove everybody in that category? That's a great question because that's kind of where this kind of thing started, where I started teaching more advanced models to guys that had you know, a decent little group, I was teaching just the guys who were doing 900, doing 1.2, doing 1.4, and were a little bit burned out. And were also a little eh, not feeling the greatest about their retirement. And so let's, let's go back to the, we'll, we'll hit the rewind button after all these funny definitions. And we'll just put it into the solo practice terms. Just like when I used to teach phasing out seminars from 2006 to 2008, and what I would teach is a better model than bringing in an associate to buy in, because that's that's pretty classic in dentistry. Is I'm going to bring I'll bring on an associate once we hit this level type of thing, and they bring a couple in and most fail. <laughs> yeah, and most and then they'd say, and then they'd be just like the guy I met with today. His last associate, after his other partners left, was from Florida. He moved back, and the staff said, don't get another associate. Usually, they're you know, oftentimes more of a headache. So this model involves, instead of bringing on an associate to buy in, involves bringing in a trial partner. And so let's say you're doing $1.2 million. So you're just, you're changing instead of like, Hey, let's just bring on some help. And you know, and you're changing the whole the paradigm to, Hey, let's bring on a sample partner or a trial partner so that you're, you're changing the whole dynamic of, of the even integration of that person. Yeah, absolutely. And watch what happens here. There's, it's incredible what happens. And I didn't even know this until I started doing personally because I used to have 28 associates between 2001 and 2006. And I would never employ another associate, A, because I don't think it's right for, well, it's not as advantageous for the dentist. Now, albeit there's a lot that would just prefer to be an associate, and that's okay. But when it comes to the business of dentistry, it is so much more favorable to both parties. So let's do this. Trial partner versus an associate to buy in. First of all, it's a great litmus test. So I have found that dentists who apply for a trial partnership end up being the go-getters, the go-getters, both clinically and business-wise, because a lot of people who apply to be an employee or an associate, they could be good dentists, but they're not looking to maximize their career financially. But the guy who comes in applying for an ownership position, he knows what he wants. He wants to own something, and most of us understand that when you rent a house versus owning it, there's financial incentives and tax incentives. So you get the guys that just are keying in on the better financial stuff, tax incentives, financial incentives, all that stuff. So you get a really high-quality candidate, and it separates those who are noncommittal, who may want to leave in two years, you're getting your, your more solid candidates. You're attracting A players to that, that whole, you know, just putting that out there is attracting the A players. Okay. I like that. Absolutely. So you got your A players. Now you're dealing with, you pick your A player and what do you do? So you're doing one, 1.2 million and you say to the guy, Hey, you know what? A lot of these groups, 
are doing evening hours, even some Saturdays. I've realized I need to expand my hours. I close down at 4.30. That's peak demand time. I'd love for you to come in, and I'd love to see us grow from 1.2 to, let's say, 2 million. And once we do grow to 2 million, obviously the business is probably worth about 1.7 or 1.8. So roughly, your half of the business would be worth about 900 at that point. But I'll tell you what, I'd like you, I'd like us to lock the price in at a much lower value so that you get the equity of that growth with me. So I'd like to offer you buying in for, let's put a number of 625000 on it. So the guy with a $1.2 million practice, most $1.2 million practices sell for about eight fifty to 900 So you would be selling half the practice for six twenty-five, which is only 175000 less than what the whole practice is worth. And it's still a lot less than what it will be worth when you do the $2 million. So you're kind of splitting that growth between the young guy and yourself. And so it's a very fair way of doing it. And frankly, that young guy is not at risk until he goes to the bank and buys in. And so during the trial period, you're both taking a risk, so to speak. So you both split that kind of proposed growth. So he comes in at 625, and that is the basics of the trial partnership agreement set forth a price in an option agreement. It's much like a lease option in real estate. So you've got a price. So let's say you agree to 625 and then you have your terms. And oftentimes you'll do an independent contractor agreement or even an associate agreement that has the words trial partner at the top. And so it's actually quite simple. It's just a, a slightly different equation, but it's an equation that's working them toward being a formal owner on the clinical side. So anyway, the compensation that I recommend is instead of the normal associate, and this is how you have to say it to the trial partner candidates. So those of you that are listening that are saying, yeah, I kind of want to do a trial partner. Here's how you'd say it over the phone. You'd say, okay, Jimmy, I understand you saw the classified ad that said owner, trial ownership or trial partnership candidate in a $1.2 million practice wanted. Please email here. Expected income, 350000 a year. So that's the expected net income and whatnot. You'd say, okay, Jimmy. So here, an associate makes money one way. They usually get like 30% of collections or production. What I'd like to offer you, Jimmy, is a trial partnership opportunity that gives you income four ways. And so Jimmy said, oh, really? Okay, tell me. So you'd say way number one is your base pay which would be 25% of collections. Number two would be some management profits, and that's for doing things that a, a partner might do. And, and I'll delineate what, what you might be good at and what you'd watch over. Number three, profits. So every month, a partner normally receives profits. So you're going to get profits as a trial partner, just like you would as if you had already gone to the bank. But out of those profits, every month comes a partnership payment. Now, he hasn't gone to the bank yet, right? So you want to set this payment just slightly higher than what his payment would be to the bank at 625 at current interest rates. That way, when the trial partnership period is over and he acquires formal financing to pay the $625,000, he actually starts making more money 
because his monthly payment is a little less. It's less, yeah. Yes. So you don't you don't want to set your partnership payment during the trial partnership period higher or lower than what the bank financing will be, then it'll de de incentivize. But if it's slightly higher, it will incentivize one to go to the bank. And then the fourth form of income is equity growth. So you start teaching them a little lesson on the equity of the business. So as the business revenue grows, which I believe it will when you come aboard, Jimmy, as that business equity grows, that's actually unseen cash. And you're earning that because we've already locked in the sale price. So if it does hit $2 million, that means half of it's worth about 900000 which means you have a positive equity position of $275,000. And if we've done that within 18 months, boy, you've done really well. So then Jimmy says, well, you know what? You're doing $1.2 million right now. The business is worth $800,000. I want to set that price at $400,000, which is half of that. And you could say, I, I understand that, Jimmy. But the reality is this is a trial partnership. It's, I'm not selling right now. I want to see you know, how much we like each other and make sure we can grow the business beyond what it's doing. But I'll tell you what, in the contract, Jimmy, let's put a, I'll put a clause in there that says, I guarantee the business is worth at least $50,000 more than what you're going to pay for it when the, when the bank financing comes through. So that way, we can adjust the price if it's not even worth that much. And then Jimmy says, oh, okay, so you're guaranteeing that the business will be worth more than what I'm paying for. And if we do get to $2 million, it's worth 900000 and I've got a windfall. And then you say, that's right, Jimmy. Exactly. That's the way I want to set it up. Now, if you get another stickler who says, hey, but I only think I should pay $400,000 because you're only doing $1.2 million, and I'm buying half in. Then you'd say, Jimmy, I'm going to pretty much turn my practice upside down to bring you in, and it's going to be a lot of work. I'm going to pay extra money in marketing to get you new patients. I'm going to hire another staff person at my risk to grow this practice. I'm going to be mentoring you and talking to you when I'm not seeing patients, which is a cost. So there's got to be something in it for both of us. I've kind of split the difference on what the proposed growth would be. And Jimmy says, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. I didn't know you'd have to market more and spend your own money or hire another staff. And you're right. I do want clinical mentorship. I'd love for you to teach me implants. You know, that sounds really great. Then that's a good candidate. But if Jimmy says this again, you know, I'm going to my accountant and seeing what, let's get a valuation done. Then you don't want Jimmy because Jimmy thinks the world revolves around him and that you should give him something for nothing. This is a, a two-way street. You've got to do well and the, the trial partner has to do well. And lacking a little bit of vision and the upside. Like, you, you know, you want someone who's envisioning the upside, not so much, where are we right now? You're absolutely right. And unfortunately, a lot of dentists are ultra skeptical and are not vision visionary folks and are going to say, what if we never grow up beyond 1.2? That's one of the reasons I like the trial partnership, because they will fire themselves if they're a non-producer they're out of there, right? They, they can't make it fly with those partnership payments. And so often I hear from guys, they're like, yeah, I got four really good associates. Yeah, I got two others that, ah, boy, they just, they really don't, I mean, they play, play on their phone half the time. They're not producing. And I have more guys saying, how do I get rid of a non-productive associate? The trial partner equation solves that problem. They fire themselves. 
so that's that's what I did for three years, about 480 of them around the country. And there's a bunch of little bells and whistles on that agreement that are made to help the relationship actually close and fund and finance and work well. Brady, what I like about this, uh, and, and I actually, in full disclosure, I, flew to, I want to tell everyone I flew to your seminar in Dallas and listened to you talk about this for a, a long, long time. And I loved it. And here's what I like about it, Brady, is that you're an honest guy, and this is a fully transparent model, right? It's a win for everybody. And I always, and we have a saying in my practice, it's called a triple win. And you know, I always say like, I've got to win, you've got to win, and the practice has got to win. And this fits that bucket of being a triple win because everybody's winning. It's a transparent model, and you're showing the the vision and of growth and not so much like, well, it's not a scarcity mentality. It's more of an abundant mentality. I think it's a healthy, you know, especially the transparency. I think it's a healthy, very, um, a healthy and a way to start a relationship from the front end. Yep. And I think it works for these solo guys. You know, there's all sorts of stuff you can build into there. Like instead of setting up a separate management company or DSO, if you're just going to add one guy, maybe add another, then cut back to one or two days a week do something like that, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of time mentoring these guys. So all you have to do is put in the operating agreement of the PLLC that the founder of the practice shall receive 3% of the monthly gross receipts as a founder's fee, which will cover all of his time for management and for mentoring. And it'll give him a return on investment as the founder of the practice who started the practice. And surprisingly everybody respects that and it's not much money uh, but but it's a great way to have some residual income is that different than the dso dso money totally different than the dso money this would be where someone wants to stay solo and just add a, a guy or two but still still stay in practice work a day or two a week receive that extra three percent of gross so this is kind of a toned down watered down DSO model where you don't go through the trouble of setting up a separate entity or LLC and you don't go through the trouble of signing a business services agreement. You just do something real simple. It's one extra paragraph and the operating agreement gives you your residual income and allows for you to work in the practice one or two days a week. So it's really nice for guys that want to phase out but just don't want to be done. They, they want to con- continue having a presence. And I've seen those ones actually the guy likes it so much and now he has so much free time and he says, boy, I did pretty good on that. And I still own a chunk of the practice. I'm going to do it again. So guys that were just thinking solo, they now with a little capital say, I think I'm going to do another practice. And, and then they do it over again, sometimes with the guys that bought in the first time. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, so that is like a little micro model of like the bigger entrepreneurial DSO model. Yeah. And it, and it still provides an annuity over time, allows the dentist to stay in the game and no one has a problem with it because, yes, it's it's money, it's significant money, but everyone sees the value of what the founding partner did for that practice. And we'll have to do going forward. And we'll have to do going forward. The mentor, like the mentorship, you know, basically the CEO and the visioneer. Yeah, yeah, that's 
That's cool. That's that's cool. So everyone feels taken care of and not taken advantage of. Okay, I like it. I like it. You know, we you talked about something earlier that that I wrote down that I wanted to go back to, and that was that you and I are both big fans of dentistry, and that you know we know it's a good business. We're doing good service to good people, and we're being rewarded for it, especially especially at scale. But what's cool about dentistry, I think, is that. There is a barrier to entry, and I I have to say selfishly that I do like the fact that that all the board regulations want there to be a dentist owner because I always tell people that that diminish you know without that you know so we're an advantage being a dentist and so you you're a, you're in such a great position to do to create wealth because you the barrier to entry and you're really only competing quote unquote against other dentists it's not these huge you know, investment groups or, you know, it's not like a restaurant where anyone can own a restaurant, so to speak, right? Like the air is pretty thin up there. And if you want to do well, you can. If you want to just do your own like solo gig and, and run your practice, you can. Like, so I, I think that's what I love most about dentistry is it offers so much for anyone. If you just want to be an associate and, and make a, you know, this, you know, a guaranteed income, then you can do that. So it's, it's whatever you want it to be. And there's really no ceiling and there's no like, there's no rules in dentistry, which I think is just awesome. Awesome. Especially in the in the cottage industry of what we're talking about right here, you know, the the smaller owner, not the not the big corporate group. It's totally true, and I continually think about, you know, what's dentistry going to be like in ten years, and what's it going to be like in twenty years, and you know, I'm trying to figure out what in the world dentistry is going to be like in a decade or two. I've read certain statistics, and here's an interesting statistic. Right now, revenues per year in dentistry as a whole, at least last time I read it from, I think it was two years ago, was $110 billion. And over the next 10 years... Wait, as a whole in the industry, you're saying? Yep. Okay, $110 billion a year. $110 billion as a whole. That includes DSOs, solo pit practice, everyone in the U.S., and in the next 10 years, corporate groups are supposed to, so we're supposed to grow up to $150 billion in 10 years, and corporate groups are going to receive $40 billion of the $150 billion, which is almost a third of the revenue, which is a lot more than right now. That means they'll expand by about 300%. And so I wonder what it's going to be like. I mean, they're growing really fast right now, corporate groups. But I kind of have you sensed, Peter, that there's like just the last three years, dentists are like educating themselves like no other time. And I think the pendulum, like I always, you know, everything's about a pendulum. Sometimes things get super heavy one way and everyone freaks out. And then the pendulum kind of swings back a little bit. And I, I agree with you. And I don't know if that's what you're about to say, but I kind of feel like it's the power is coming back to. I don't know. I don't feel like there's this there's this huge power like corporate takeover that everyone was so scared of. I feel like the pendulum is coming back towards the practitioner, single practitioner. I think it is too, and that's and at least that's one of my goals is to help dentists, you know, become really good with the business side, compete a lot with the DSOs, and instead of it being a forty billion dollar chunk that the DSOs control, I'd love to keep it down at twenty billion. <laughs> and keep twenty billion of the other half more in dentist's pocket. And it seems to be with the information age, you know, information is readily available. A lot of guys are aspiring to be better entrepreneurs as dentists. So I think the pendulum is going to turn. And I would frankly love to see some of these corporate groups start to disseminate and dentist-owned groups buying them up. Wouldn't that be fun? 
That would be cool. For pennies on the dollar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I hate to say that, but I mean, hey, for all of us on the on this podcast, we know what we went through in dental school. We know what we paid to be in dental. And yeah, I think it should be an industry that is largely controlled by private practitioners. And I agree. You know, honestly, like, you know, we all run businesses and yes, we are all concerned with P&Ls and profitable. But I think when a corporation's only concern is the P&L and how it does versus the, we as the practice owner, we know Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Smith and Mrs. You know, we we have the direct tangible relationship with that person. And I, and I do want that preserved, not just for selfish reasons. I know I'm speaking that way because it, it benefits me, but you know, as being the a pra- small practice owner, but I do think that that is, I think if that, if that aspect is destroyed, then we're all screwed. I totally agree. So here's a topic that we talked about on one of the other podcasts that was never published and it was real estate but I want to go to another topic, which is a more personal topic. My grandfather, who was a dentist, he did pretty well as a private practitioner in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. He kind of was a penny pincher, which is fine, but he uh, ended up sa- saving up $10 million in cash. He lived off the interest and didn't feel like he could spend a cent of it because he was living off the interest. And I realized there's a big difference between an accumulation mindset versus a cash flow mindset. And so I thought we could talk about that as a last topic because I feel like so many dentists now are saying, you know, when I hit X in my retirement account, that's when I can retire. And I I realized that because that's what most of the guys said to me at the phasing out seminars. I said, when do you want to retire? Well, when I hit 2.7 million in my retirement account, I'm calling it quits. So they're basically accumulating this money thinking that that'll be enough and of course, Peter, we've talked about the interest rates and all that. It's, unless you have about ten million at three percent, which is three hundred thousand a year take home, you know it's really tough to to replace your lifestyle as a, a practicing dentist. So, what I like to chat about are multiple streams of income, and those streams ideally would be more of a residual or passive type of income. And there's a lot of things that can give you residual income, and Residual income or cash flow is the stuff that we use to fund our lifestyle. Cash accumulation doesn't fund our lifestyle, meaning if we save up $3 million, we don't just go grabbing hunks of cash to use it, or else we feel like we're slowly dying and using up our nest egg. So it's only reasonable to think in terms of cash flow when we think about our ability to cut back in dentistry. And so I want to review the streams of income that are available within the niche of dentistry and particularly in this DSO piece, this multi-location, multi-doctor piece. And so first of all, there's a book that I read about 12 years ago. Great book and really helps lay a foundation for a lot of this stuff. It's called Multiple Streams of Income by Robert Allen. And so I'd highly recommend the book, Multiple Streams of Income by Robert Allen. He goes over probably about 300 different streams of income. And what's, what? yeah, exactly. Royalties, licensing fees, LLC cash flow, minority interest in certain businesses, all sorts of stuff. Even talks about network marketing, right? Which is a stream of income for some people. But nevertheless, it's a great read because you find out how you can reverse engineer and create multiple streams of income in whatever you're doing. And so 
particularly in the DSO market, we've got management income from the DSO. We've got clinical income while you're working, which isn't really passive, but it's a, a form, it's a stream of income. We've got income from leases on buildings. So once you do acquire some wealth, you can then put that into an income producing asset. And real estate just happens to be one of the good ones for dentistry because we all need somewhere to practice and leases. You know, dentists have one of the lowest default rates of tenants. So real estate is one of those. And of course, if you set up more regions, you've got residual income from that regional DSO. So I think, Peter, it would be great to talk about real estate next time because we all have to deal with it as private practitioners. I do think that we do need to have a part two. And I also want to go back to kind of in closing what you said about kind of the nest egg mentality, which is interesting. And people have this image in their head of what it looks like. But then when they get there, and I I know some people who have done this, they get there. And then the quality of our life, it changes drastically, just like your grandpa. Like they, they have, yeah, they may have 6 million in, but at 3%, now they've got 180, they had tax on that. Now they've taken like this monster pay cut. If they had just stayed in the game, like the model that you're proposing, it they'd had more fun, they'd been more energized, they'd actually had more cash flow. And um, yeah, so I think you're doing, you're doing great things, Brady, for the dentist and the profession as a whole. I'm, I'm super... Uh, Super proud to call you my friend because I do I do think that you know you're doing great things for dentistry and, and I think you're making it a better place. I totally appreciate it. If you guys want me to give you a link to that book, multiple streams of income, just email me, Brady Frank. Is it on Amazon or something? I can just put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's totally on Amazon. I'll put that in the notes and or and the title. And then if someone wants to get a hold of you, can I can I publish your your email? Absolutely, publish my personal email. BradyFrank74 at gmail.com if you have any questions. And then, uh, yeah, this real estate one is going to be fun. I'm actually going down to lecture this May at a mastermind group of 60 dentists who are all investing heavily in real estate. They fly into Dallas. I'm lecturing there on specifically on the topic of buying dental real estate from the banks and how to find those properties available and how to buy defaulted, perfect kind of Taj Mahal practices through the banks. So that's what I'm chatting on at that lecture. But maybe that's what uh, I incorporate. Into we we our need next, to do a part uh, two. I would love to because I'm a big fan. I, as I, you know, I talked on Mark Costas's podcast. I'm a big fan of real estate. I like being in control of that real estate. So I, I am definitely super motivated to get you back on and let's have a part two, which will be, you know, let's talk all about real estate, the real estate associated with dentistry and some strategies there that can benefit us as well. Awesome. Awesome. Peter, great to talk to you. Hey, this was the third time. This is part three. I wish everyone else would have gotten to hear part one. Uh, Yeah. Well, no, they're not hearing me (laughs) and the chipmunks talking. So uh, I, I have to say, Brady, you know, I think the third time is the charm. I think this was our best collaboration and, uh, I'm, I'm super excited to get this out. To, and in uh, distribution to everybody because everyone's going to get tremendous value on what you what you just spoke. So everyone, stay tuned for part two of uh, we will do the the real estate one in the near future, and we will sign off. Brady, thanks so much again for your time and and being patient with the uh, technical difficulties. And yeah, just thank you so much, buddy. Hey, thanks for all you're doing, Peter. Appreciate it. Okay, bud. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to Bulletproof Dental Practice with your host, Dr. Peter Bolden, online at BulletproofDentalPractice.com. We'll catch you next time.